Hey folks and welcome back. This is Simon Ward and you're listening to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'd like to guide you on a journey to living longer and living healthier through improved sleep, nutrition, fitness, mobility and stress management. Of course, the benefit of this is that you'll also be improving your athletic performance. In the next few weeks, we'll be launching our very first High Performance Human course and we're currently taking applications for the beta version which will last for six weeks with an investment of just £200 per person. This is significantly lower than the final cost will be when the full course is up and running. Now, if you're interested in joining me on this journey, you can get more information by emailing beth at thetriathloncoach.com or look for the link in the show notes. So in this week's podcast episode, I'm back to talking triathlon as we are joined by one of the top-ranked long-distance female triathletes in the US, Chelsea Sodaro. The discussion's highly topical as we approach the final selections for the inaugural Collins Cup, which takes place this August. Now, at the start of the year, Chelsea was ranked second in the US, but in March, she gave birth to her first child, Skylar, which obviously means no racing for a short time, but it's not over yet. Chelsea's return to fitness and then racing is now being documented in a new mini-series, Greater Than One. Because of her high ranking at the end of last year, Chelsea needs to race once this year to put her in contention for one of the six female places on the US team. Now, she's not well known in Europe, but when you listen to this conversation, I'm sure you'll find her just as I did, a warm, engaging and socially aware athlete who has a great future at long distance races in the sport. In fact, her coach, Dr. Dan Plews, who is a regular visitor to this podcast, rates her as having real Kona potential. In today's show, we talk about the following topics. Chelsea's previous athletic career as a full-time runner, aiming to qualify for the Rio Olympics in 2016. And that was followed by a steep learning curve after she switched to triathlon in 2017. Why the ITU circuit didn't work for Chelsea, despite World Cup victories. How the PTO maternity policy works and why it's a game changer for professional triathletes how to train during pregnancy and safely regain your fitness after childbirth the value of having a support team postpartum anxiety mental health in general and the power of conversation the greater than one mini series and finally chelsea's own personal view on how the pto really stepped up to the plate in 2020 so without further ado Let's get cracking and have a conversation with Chelsea. Welcome to the High Performance Human Podcast, Chasey Soldaro. Hi, Simon. Thank you so much for having me on. Happy to be here. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for thank you for joining us. So we've got a lot to talk about. There's a lot going on in your world right now. But for listeners who are based in the UK, as most of mine are, um, maybe we should introduce you to them and, and talk to talk about how you've got to the point where you're one of the top ranked long distance triathletes, female triathletes in the US. So um, tell us a little bit about your journey into triathlon. Sure. Yeah. So I started out as, well, I played a variety of sports as a kid, but I uh, really found my love for endurance sports in cross country and track and field when I was in high school. And, and I had like a pretty solid high school career. And so was recruited to run collegiately. And I ran at UC Berkeley and I was actually injured for a lot of my time there, but during my fifth year or rather my super senior year, as we call it at Cal, I had uh, a few all American performances and some, and some really solid marks on the track that 
kind of lit the fire for me to pursue professional running after I graduated and and professional was definitely a loose term for what I was doing when I first started out but I ended up um winning a national championship very soon after graduating from college on the roads in the 10k and then I won the 3k indoor national championships um a, a few months later and so I kind of had this budding running career and I proceeded to train through the Olympic trials in 2016. And I had some kind of moments of, I don't know, greatness necessarily, but some moments that really made me believe that I could compete, you know, at the highest level in running. I actually competed in Europe a few times. I ran on the diamond league circuit. Um, And, you know, while I had some very solid performances, I also struggled with injury a lot as well. And, had a horrible day at the U.S. Olympic trials in 2016 in the 10K, was super defeated. My shoe endorsement was going to be up at the end of that that year, and I I really had no idea what I was going to do next. And I had been following triathlon as a fan, and you know the American women on the ITU circuit at that time still, but at that time especially, were so competitive and mm-hmm. dominant and really medal contenders in Rio. And my husband and I, we were watching the Rio Olympics, watching Gwen Jorgensen do her thing. And he looked at me and he said, you could do that. You should give it, you should give it a try. I think you'd be good at that. And I just laughed out loud. I thought it was so ridiculous, but he ended up getting me a bike and we started riding together and I just got totally obsessed. I think as a lot of triathletes do at all levels with the idea of competing in triathlon and I quickly joined a professional ITU squad and in San Diego and did my first triathlon in the spring of 2017, I think, got my elite license in that race and then was racing Continental Cups and World Cups. And um, I ended up actually winning a World Cup about a year and a half after my first triathlon. And, you know, the... ITU circuit is very unforgiving uh-huh. for uh, any sort of family life. And I was, I think, 27 or 28 at that time. I had been married for a couple of years and I was having to kind of live away from my husband for a lot of the year. And it and I crossed the line at that World Cup and I'm like by myself in Mexico and my family's not there and there's like no one to celebrate with. And I was just just kind of at that stage in life where I that's not really how I wanted to, to live anymore. And that's kind of what, what brought me to long distance triathlon. Yeah. That's kind of a crash course. Well, I have a few questions then from that. I mean, it seems like you and Gwen have swapped places then because she's gone into pure running and you've come into triathlon. I don't have an Olympic gold medal though. (laughs) I'm not yet. (laughs) Um, And we also in the UK, we've got a a young lady who's, uh, I think she set the 5k world record on the road recently, Beth Potter. Have you and Beth ever raced uh, together as, as runners? I know Beth and I'm sure that we have raced. I, I think that we've raced. I can't remember like exactly what competitions we've raced at, but, but I know that our paths have crossed and we've corresponded a little bit just via social media. And yeah, I'm a total, like, I'm really impressed with what she's doing both in her running and in triathlon. It's fun. It's fun to follow. I'm, you know, a fan of those multidimensional athletes, as you can imagine. You didn't mention swimming in, in your 
sort of school and college career and of course swimming is one of those things that's skill-based you you'll have obviously have a good aerobic platform from running but there's the there's the upper body strength that runners pure runners don't tend to have and then there's the skill that people who've, who've swum at younger ages tend to pick up and then it just stays in there so at what point did you um start swimming uh regularly and at what point did you then have to really pick up the volume so i'm from Davis, California, which is actually where Dave Scott is from. Yes. Believe it or not, I am currently renting a part of the house that he grew up in right now. Um, But anyway, Davis is a super active place. Mm -hmm. It's actually Bike City, USA. Everyone does swim team growing up. Everyone rides their bike all over the place. And so I did summer swim league starting when I was five or six and I was not a talent and I did not enjoy it. But I think just having that familiarity in the water mm-hmm. and some sort of feel for the water really paid off for me when I started triathlon when I was 27. Um, and I was injured a lot, like I mentioned earlier when I was a runner. So I was in the pool a lot more than I, mm. than I fancied, so to speak. But I feel really fortunate when I first started out in triathlon, like I mentioned, I joined a full-time ITU squad and it, it ultimately wasn't the best fit for me, but I was immersed in this daily training environment with some of the best swimmers in ITU. Mm -hmm. And although I wasn't in the same lane as them, I think that just being in that environment and looking over to your left and seeing what they look like when they're swimming every Mm -hmm. single day Mm for five K a day makes a difference. And it was such, you know, a high performance environment that there was no other option except for me to just hang on and get it done and do it. And I, you know, I swam, I think I was swimming, you know, 30 plus K a week for at least my first year, two years. And and I, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. It was super hard, but I love the challenge of getting better. And every single day was like, just see if you can make the send off for, for a few months. Yeah. Well, th- swimming 30 K a week certainly ramps up your progress, doesn't it? And, uh, you, you talked about how the ITU circuit can be unforgiving for family life, but if you're not a swimmer, it's pretty unforgiving in those races, isn't it? Because it's all about making the front pack these days in, uh, in, in, in the, the WTS races and the ITU races. Yeah, it is. And, and although I saw really, I think relatively quick progress in the pool, the open water dynamics was a another mm. challenge for me. And I definitely had some fear that I had to navigate and didn't necessarily navigate really well. And so that was that was more challenging that it's so physical in ITU mm. and so competitive in the swim. And I think with how what the what the ITU circuit is like right now, you know, it kind of evolves. Uh, throughout the years, whether it's, you know, swim mm. bike dominant or bike run dominant. And right mm. right now at least it seems to really, you really have to be able to swim to be in the mix. Yes. I think sometimes that those races favor people who've actually had a background in water polo rather than conventional swimming. Right. I know it is, it is a battle every single time. So I guess in many ways then, uh, moving up to the longer distance and 70.3 has been good for you for family life and perhaps because um, you can afford not to be right at the very front of the swim um, to, to, and you know, you don't get penalized as much, do you? 
Yeah, I think it's been good. It's been a real positive for me on a number of levels. My swim is a lot more competitive in in 70.3 long distance. So I, you know, am in the front pack sometimes coming out of the water. And that's always my goal. You know, I'm still I'm still working on my swim and I still want to be, I'm a racer. And so I want to be in the front pack of the swim every time. I think it's been super refreshing for me to step away from that Olympic pressure. That was such a big goal for me for a long time, but it's been really freeing to let go of that. And I think that it's, you know, a massive goal for any athlete participating in an Olympic sport, but I even see some of my kind of former running peers realizing that that doesn't have to be, you know, the end all be all. And And you can actually have an incredible career on the roads and in the marathon. And similarly for triathlon, you can have an incredible career in the, in the longer distance and actually, um, you know, Kona and hopefully some of these PTO races, they're really like the pinnacle of our sport in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And, and I also just love that, how inclusive it is, I guess, with the amateur side of the sport as well. Yeah. What you say there about the Olympics is not the first time I've heard that. You know, we're in Leeds here. We have a big program. You know, the Brownleys based here. Um, Jess Learmonth and Georgia and Alex G. Um, well, Georgia and Jess are still here. Alex has moved back down to Loughborough. But, so there's been a big program. And I know that everybody was chasing points, you know. So you're training with the people that sometimes you, you, you're going to sort of have to step in front of in order to get, get your name on the Olympic start list. And a couple of the athletes have said once they once they let go of that, they experience the same as you did, you know, that sort of freedom and just a sense of relief and a weight lifted from the shoulders and less pressure um, and maybe a bit more in bringing a bit more enjoyment back into the sport. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I also like that I can, I have a lot more control over my schedule. You know, I love to travel. I love to go to training camps, but I don't want to be at a training camp for 10 to 11 months of the year anymore. Well, and it's going to training camps also. I think people outside the sport see it as glamorous that you can go to these nice places, you know, in the depths of winter and although it's probably never that cold in California, is it? But um, but traveling takes its toll. You know, if you go if you go away a dozen times a year, you, you need at least a day or two either side of the trip. So that's that's you can you can lose a month's worth of training just through the traveling to those training camps where you're supposed to be accelerating your training. So it, it's 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 almost a zero sum game in the end. Yeah, that's true. And I think that I really believe, at least for me, I perform best when I'm, when I'm really happy and I feel like fulfilled in a variety of areas in my life. And I, I easily get sucked into being very single-minded and very focused on whatever task is at hand. But, but when I am able to take some of the pressure off when I'm happy in my personal life, and I have, you know, like friendships and other things that, you know, fill me up outside of sport. I, I actually race a lot better. So I've told this story before, but before 2012, I was chatting to Jodie Swallow and I asked her who she thought was, was were going to be the medalist. And she gave me five names and she was very confident about these. And I asked her why she had such confidence. She said, because I know all these girls really well and they're all in a really happy, good place at the moment. And so that, that, for your comment there about being you know, having a balanced life and happiness is, is again, something I think is probably a little bit overlooked um, when, you, when you're not in the sport. So 70.3 then, you are currently 
one of the top female athletes in the United States. And that's important because the PTO, we've already mentioned, have got this big new tournament. I mean, it's been brewing for a few years now. And uh, for one reason or another, it, it hasn't got off the ground yet. But this summer, we will see the first edition of the Collins Cup. Now, there's going to be three different teams, isn't there? There's the USA, there's Europe, and then there's the internationals, which is like Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and and anything else that's not Europe or USA. And then there's going to be six females and six males. And I think the top four females for each of those groups are selected on merit. And then the other two that are in the team are the captain's choices. Now, you're currently in a position where you could get one of those top four spots. But... But there's a little something that's got in the way. There is. Yeah. So I am currently ranked eighth in the world on the PTO standings. I do not have, I am not ranked for the Collins Cup selection process yet. And that is because I gave birth to my daughter eight weeks ago. And so I haven't had an opportunity to race yet and get a mark on the board. So you know, my path to the Collins Cup this this year is going to be a little bit unique, but I am pretty confident and excited about my chances of being automatic automatically selected. And, and that's my goal and something that I have kept at the forefront of my mind throughout my pregnancy. And now in these weeks, as I'm starting to get back to training after giving birth. I'm not sure about the Collins Cup. Is it supposed to be an annual event? Or is it biannual? I I think it's going to be an annual event. So my question here would be the time scale for you to get back some fitness and then be ready to race, because there's a difference between those two, isn't there? Training and being ready to race. Um, well enough to get back into the Collins Cup seems like an awful, and I think the racing's in August, so it's not long now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have to ask, why put your pressure on yourself this year? And particularly when you've had that history of injuries and not give yourself 14 months and have a really good go of it for 2022. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, like I kind of mentioned earlier, earlier, I, I am a racer and this is my job and this is what I love to do. And I'm not necessarily looking at the Collins cup as this massive source of pressure to get my body back or return to what I was before. I am more looking at it as something that's really motivating and inspiring for me to an inspiring kind of carrot to encourage my return to racing and in a way that is going to be kind of a new reinvention of me as an athlete and, and something that I hope that ultimately my daughter will look back Add and be really proud of what her mom was able to do while also, you know, raising this little girl. Well, I guess if you don't try, you don't know, do you, what you're capable of? Yeah, absolutely. I just don't, I don't really see a downside in, in giving it a go. Well, let's talk about how you kept fit then, because uh, you've, and we can talk about this in more um, detail a bit later on, but you are the centerpiece. Well, I guess your daughter will form part of this now from episode two and your husband of this new uh, mini series that PTO have published called greater than one. So we'll put, a, we'll put a link to episode one in the show notes. And I think by, by the time the podcast comes out, episode two might be out as well. Um, in there, you're talking about how you train through pregnancy. So 
um, but it only covers the later stages. So were you a, it, it appeared in there that you were pretty much training up to ground zero day. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I stayed on a training schedule from my coach, uh, Dr. Dan Pluse, all the way through about 25 weeks, I think it was. And I was still training anywhere between 15 and 20 hours a week during that time. And I was still doing a fair amount of intensity. There's actually a point when I decided, I want to say around 21, 22 weeks of pregnancy where I had a really close call with a car. And I decided that riding outside, it was just not going to be a smart choice for me moving forward. But I was still doing, you know, three hour rides on my trainer at that stage on the TT bike. Around 20, and I was still swim, but swim biking and running at a fairly like decent level, not my full on like race fitness sort of intensity, but, but still, you know, training decently well around 25 weeks, you know, you start to get a little bit bigger. I was still having a lot of nausea actually. And so I was having a harder time sticking to a real specific training schedule, but I still continued to swim, bike and run through 35 weeks and really backed off the running at that point, but was biking and swimming and, and in the gym through my yeah due date. I, I know Dan Plus very well. Dan's a Yorkshireman. He's not far from, from not far away from where I live. And he's been a guest on this podcast. I think he's him and Paul Larson are vying for top honors at the moment. Oh, so, I love yeah, it. I'll but, have to but, check that out. Yeah, but Dan's Dan's based in New Zealand still, isn't he? So you're in California. So it's obviously remote coaching. But what about medical supervision? Did you did you have any local medical supervision just to check that everything was all right as you were progressing with your pregnancy and continuing to train? I did. Yeah, I had really wonderful um, OBGYNs who who were super encouraging of my training. And, and I was probably actually more concerned than they were. They really had a lot of trust in me and just encouraged me to do what felt good. And every time I went in and the baby got checked out and I got checked out, everything, everything looked great. The only time that I was told to maybe take it easy was literally on my due date. Right. But you were still training on your due date. That's in the that's in the TV program, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I trained. Sky was due on March fifteenth, and I had my my yeah my forty week appointment that morning, mm-hmm. and I was already like having some contractions at that point, and so my doctor said, "I think that you should take today off and just put your feet up, and we'll see how you feel tomorrow." In the Episode one, you talk about training with and collaborating with Sarah Pampiano. So yes. does she live close to you then? She, we did live very close together. Yeah. We lived about 10 minutes away and, um, she's a, you know, training partner of mine and very good friend. So, so we trained together for a lot, a lot of the pregnancy or at least like a, a couple of days a week, we would get together for something. I actually moved about an hour away. Um, right before or right around Christmas time to be closer to my family. Cause I was really anticipating, you know, what this, the childcare situation was going to be like when, when sky was born, but we actually scheduled a couple of Zwift rides a week mm-hmm. and we would just call each other and link ourselves on Zwift um, during the last couple of months of our pregnancy. It really helped, you know, to have, have 
a plan to meet someone when you're starting to get bigger and getting a little more uncomfortable. So we were still training together virtually at that stage. Were your pregnancies pretty much um, month for month then, like for like? She was two weeks ahead of me. Okay. Yeah. So not really, not really many notes to give away then from her because you were pretty much <laughs> going through the same things at the same time, pretty much. You know, actually, I think that things change so quickly from week to week. And, you know, you're, we both had our pregnancy apps and you get, you know, little notifications about how the baby's growing week to week and how you should be feeling week to week. So I would actually get a little preview from her about what I, <laughs> what I might be feeling a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks down the road. And this, uh, um, there's been a, there's been a few other um, female triathletes, hasn't there? Marinda's just had another baby, and mm-hmm. um, who else? I, I not not recently, but Radka Kalfelt. I interviewed her uh, a year or two ago, and she was talking about how she took her little um, little girl Ruby, on, yeah, her yeah, on, girl. on yeah. onto the tour with her, and she'd have to give them to somebody while she was in the press conference. And but but Ruby was the centre of attention, and she became a little bit of a um, a character on the tour. Yeah. You know, I actually had dinner with Radka after the 2019 world champs in Nice at the awards dinner. Mm-hmm. And I was just picking her brain about how, how she does, how, how she did it with her daughter, Ruby, because Ruby was there in Nice. And I was so impressed with, you know, her performance and, and I just thought it was amazing to see her, you know, bringing her daughter to these races and was super inspired. So maybe it was a little encouragement for me you know a year later well she travels around a bit as well doesn't she she didn't stick to australia or um, the far east yeah i think she's uh i think she's been in australia for the pandemic but she mm. just had yeah she just had a another little girl i think four days after i gave birth to sky so do you have a little pregnant mum's whatsapp group then amongst we the don't PTO but athletes? maybe we don't but maybe we should yeah yeah um, and what about training then after um, after you gave birth? Uh, how long does it take before you can get back into that? Because I guess you, you're well conditioned, but still you've got to go through childbirth. And so there's, there's a standard sort of um, recovery process for that, isn't there? There is. I think there, well, there is and there isn't. You know, every woman goes to her six-week postpartum checkup and your doctor looks looks at how you're healing and says, you're good to go, but I don't think that there's a whole, there's, there's a standard for elite athletes. And I actually think that that, that kind of checkup is very insufficient for, for Mm. all women, but I didn't put a whole lot of pressure on myself to return to any sort of activity. I, I figured I, I will give myself a month and see how I feel, but I actually felt surprisingly good walking out of the hospital we left, we were discharged from the hospital less than 24 hours after Sky was born. And I felt pretty good walking around. I was able to walk a mile a couple days later. And then I decided to try it to spin at 11 days postpartum. And I felt fine. Mm. And I think I did my first swim at three and a half weeks postpartum. And then just started to introduce a little bit more activity and started on an official training plan back with Dan um, last week on May, May 3rd. I suppose childbirth is like, like an operation, isn't it? Is you don't, you know, childbirth is the same 
but actually it's not the same. And, and until you've had that, you don't know what the after effects are going to be. And so it's an experiment of N equals one. Yeah, it's such an individual experience. And I, I'm a planner. I'm very type A. I, I thought that I was doing all of the things to set myself up for quote unquote, a successful natural birth. And I took this really extensive birthing class that I made my husband endure, which was five sessions. <laughs> Hypnobirthing is what it's called. It's a very mindful approach to birth. Super. It's, it's really, it's really quite cool and interesting, but my birth did not go to plan huh. uh, at all. I did not have my natural, uh, natural unmedicated, unmedicated birth uh, for a variety of reasons, but it was what it was and sky was healthy and I am healthy. Um, you know, I did start seeing a pelvic floor PT physical therapist mm -hmm. while I was pregnant, which I think is really important to mention. And I hope that if there are any female listeners that you have that are pregnant or thinking of starting a family and they want to set themselves up for a successful return to activity, it's something to, to consider because I started working on, you know, exercises to prepare my, my body for childbirth and then also for my return to sport while I was pregnant. And then I followed up with my PT three weeks postpartum. And now I see her every couple of weeks because it's a different sort of rehab than just seeing, you know, your weights coach or your normal PT. Mm. Yeah, no, that's good advice. I, I, it's the sort of advice I would give to somebody who was going into hospital for an operation is get, get fit to have the operation so that you can recover quicker afterwards, Right. you know, and, and that planning ahead. Um, I, I don't think it's... Uh, um, type A or OCD at all. I think it seemed, just seems sensible. Thanks. Yeah. I, you know, I like to, I like to give myself the best opportunity, you know, to, to be at my best, I suppose. Well, we talked about the PTO a little bit. Now they introduced a maternity policy, which is groundbreaking. I think I, I'm, I think they may be the first sport in the world that have, uh, or the first governing body in the world that have introduced that for their athletes, or at least in the, in the first few. So I guess that's made a massive difference to you um, compared to it, what would have happened if you'd been considering starting a family two years ago. Absolutely. Uh, when my husband and I decided to try to get pregnant, the only part of the maternity leave policy that was in place was this, you know, freezing of the rankings, mm. which was, at that stage, something that I wouldn't say was enough for me, but it, it felt like, okay, I can take these 10 months to be pregnant and there will still be some protection of the body of work that I have already done. Mm -hmm. And it won't take me so long to kind of like reestablish where I was when I, when I was pregnant, I found out about the monetary side of the maternity leave policy when I was six or seven months pregnant, actually. Mm -hmm. And I was really emotional when I heard about it and not just because I was going to be getting a check in the mail, but because it is such an incredible representation and acknowledgement that women matter in our sport, mm -hmm. that we have value and that it's, you know, worth taking care of us and investing in us so that we can have long careers. Yeah. So, I mean, 
going back to that um, about being a groundbreaking sport, are there any other sports that do that for their female athletes? Do they do that in tennis or golf, for instance, where rankings and, and um, are particularly important to the athletes? I want to say the WNBA has some sort of policy, and I think that tennis may have some sort of policy, but I'm not I'm not sure what the specifics of those are. Mm. Well, that's I mean that's another feather in the cap for the PTO recent uh, and what they've done in the last eighteen months because they I met oh, COO I think I've forgotten his name the English guy now Sam Sam sorry Sam Renouf yes I met Sam yeah. in Kona in twenty. 19 and he'd just been he said to me what on the sly i've just been appointed coo of uh, pto but i don't start until january and of course then he did start and then pandemic hit and um they were scrambling but they got the whole um grants thing up and running and they were distributing that to athletes that were well down the rankings which i know that probably made meant more to them than it did to the guys who and, and girls who are in the top top 20 who were probably earning um, reasonable prize money so yeah they've um, definitely uh, stepped up haven't they PTO in the last 18 months you know the PTO has they've really put their money where their mouth is and I think have really shown us that this is like it's our organization as athletes and the athletes have value and the athletes are what should be you know (laughs) the athletes are what make money, like should be making money for the sport and we're entertainers. And like I said, you know, we have value and and that should be like coming back to us and mm-hmm. like a monetary sort of way so that we're just, we're not just like scraping by. Well, you are the assets, aren't you? Really? Exactly. Because without you, there is no professional part of the sport. It's just the age groupers. And I mean, we shouldn't forget the age group as well, because they're the ones who pay the money that that, that um, keep the sport going generally. But equally, we have to have a top end of the sport as well. And, we, you know, I've, I've been around as a triathlete for 30 years and I was the UK compu trainer um, distributor for some of that time. And we had quite a lot of sponsored athletes who would be the, your predecessors at the top of the sport. And I saw some of those um, folks have to leave the sport because they were earning just enough money to pay for their travel and their subsistence. There, there was no sort of life. And it, if, if they had a DNF for one reason or another, and they were in a foreign country, by the time they got home, they, they were out of pocket and they would have to race the next weekend just to pay the mortgage or to pay for the shopping bill. And that doesn't seem like any way to um, continue life as a professional athlete, really. Um, so it seems like things are getting better now and that's a good thing yeah absolutely you know these top level long distance triathletes are incredible they're incredible performers and and they should be compensated and and treated as such and you know there are so many great stories in our sport as well Mm -hmm. people from all different backgrounds who have you know overcome all sorts of adversities and and those are stories worth telling that are incredibly compelling. And I think that the PTO is doing a good job of that. And, and I'm excited to see to see what we're able to all accomplish together in the next few years. Well, that seems to be something that triathlons missed out on in the past. I mean, there are some great characters, you know, we've got we've got the Sam Long and Lionel Sanders sort of thing that's going on at the moment, haven't we? We've got the Lionel Sanders and Cameron Worth thing that's sort of the little bromance that goes on from time to time. Um, we we had uh, 
well, who did we have it back in the back in the eighties and nineties? We had Paula versus Erin Baker, but they never really and, and Dave and Mark, of course. But nothing was ever really made of those rivalries, and and I do think that they can build up the the characters of the athletes a little bit more, so that you can have these not not pitching people against each other like you get in the boxing, but certainly creating these little stories about rivalries within the sport to create some sort of interest that that goes beyond just who's going to cross the line first. Absolutely. I have, I have spoken with, uh, you know, the media team over there a fair amount about that. And we're so used to being kind of beholden to this notion that we should just be polite and happy with what we have and, you Mm -hmm. know, carry on with our business. And that's not necessarily super interesting for the fans. And, and like I said, you know, there are, there are stories and rivalries and battles that are worth telling that not everyone always sees or knows about. So it's fun to see those kind of getting exposed a little bit here. I mean, we could talk about Lionel a little bit more because what I love about Lionel is he, he, he lays it all out there, doesn't he? He's super, he's self vulnerable. He's super open and authentic, but he's got a huge following. Now, if you, if you were a sponsor, um, you're either looking for people who are going to win the big events or you're going to look at people who are influencers. The Lionel's an influencer and there's a lot of people, I know there's a lot of people who think he's a bit of a fool, but there's an awful lot of people who love what he says and what he does because he's just, he's just true to himself. Yeah. I I enjoy his honesty. I, I think Lionel is a really nice guy. Every interaction that I've had with him has been super positive, but he definitely has, he definitely has created a name and a brand for himself, which Mm. Like you said, yeah, it's super attractive to the people who are paying him. Hopefully, PTO can help some of the other athletes because it, that that sort of thing comes easy to some people, doesn't it? And not as easy to others. And, and hopefully, there's some help in the background there for those athletes who don't find that sort of discourse with the with the sort of um, with the triathlon viewership just as easy. Yeah, I think they're I think they're working on massaging that out and and getting those those stories and that personality out there a bit more um how let's talk a little bit more about pto and how else has it helped you since you've become a a long distance athlete yeah i mean they had that incredible kind of relief program last year during the pandemic when we were paid out based on our rankings Mm -hmm. uh are based on kind of our end of year rankings rather than paying them at the end of the year they paid us at the beginning of the year which was huge for me ultimately because i I had very few race. I didn't have any racing opportunities early on in the year, like anyone else. And then I, I didn't race the rest of the year because, because I was pregnant. So that was, that was massive for me, especially as someone just starting out in a sport. I am kind of a newer, a newer triathlete. And while I've had a lot of early success, I'm still establishing myself. Mm -hmm. I think that, I think it is empowering to feel like we're part of something groundbreaking and progressive and something that is moving the sport forward. And, and, you know, so many endurance or endurance athletes are kind of, they live in their bubble and they're on their own little Island, just putting their head down and, and trucking along. And, and there's something to be said for that. And you have to do that to perform and get the most out of yourself. But I think it's also neat to be part of something that is, bigger than you. And, and that's really how I feel about 
the PTO and, and how I feel about this maternity leave policy and how I'm collaborating with the PTO on this greater than one series while it's telling my story about my pregnancy and my return to racing and my daughter and my family. Ultimately, it's it's not about me. It's about showing what's possible for female athletes and showing what support can do for female athletes and showing what we're capable of that we can compete at the highest levels and also have a family. Just before we go on to talk about greater than one then and go back to the maternity policy, do you think that that decision to make the financial payments to to female athletes is going to change the way in which female athletes think about starting a family because clearly it's a critical decision in the past it would have meant having to step away from the sport for well depending on how soon you could return to racing for 12 months and and then that would have affected your rankings in the past that would obviously have affected your um, income potential it might even have jeopardized some sponsorship deals so do you think this is going to change the landscape 100 percent a hundred percent. I think it's going to change the landscape. I think that it's going to change how women in our sport approach starting their families. I think it's going to make it possible for women to start to have their, their families earlier in their careers and not have to wait until they're done racing or in kind of the twilight years of, of their career. I also hope that it's going to set a precedent for other sports. Mm. You see it in the Olympic cycle, don't you, with all of the, the, you know, the highly publicized pregnancies that happen a year after the Olympics so that, that you can get the sort of like child number one out of the way and get back to training for the next Olympic cycle. And so you've probably got children that are four years apart because just because you've had to work in with Olympic cycles. It's a, it's a strange and bizarre way to go about things, really, in something that's supposed to be one of the most natural things in the world. It is. It is really interesting. And, and, you know, my husband and I, we, we really like planned this out and we had a very short window for, for getting pregnant, honestly, because I, I didn't feel that I could take, you know, all of 2020, the pandemic year off and then take all of 2020, 21 off of racing. And I had like very mixed emotions when I found out that I was pregnant because I, you know, was excited to be welcoming a child into our family, but also like quite petrified about what it would do mm. to my career because we don't have the longest window in the world. You see, you, you see women racing at an incredible level now into their late thirties and even, even early forties, but, but that's not like 30 years of a career. That's like 10 or 15 years of a career. And so to have a policy that takes a little bit of that burden and, and stress off, I think will, will allow women to, to start their families maybe a little bit earlier or when they feel ready rather than, than being so afraid of losing everything. Just one more question then for you um, in the postpartum return to training. Uh, previously you would have just really had to worry about training and recovery now you've got to worry about training and recovery and uh, a, th a third person in the relationship who needs feeding and probably wakes up in the night so how are you managing to uh, cope with all of that at the moment yeah it's a whole new ball game I, I think a lot of flexibility and then a lot of support and help from from family I I am learning that children are not meant to be raised by just their mom. They're meant to be raised 
by their village and their community. And that's kind of the, <laughs> the approach that, that we are taking here. My, my husband is going through a career change as well. So that has been pretty intense for our family, but we, we moved down the street from my parents actually, so that we could have a lot of family support, especially as I get back into training and, and I, and I think communication too, with my, with my coach and my whole support team has been crucial. I am really, really fired up by, by the people that I have supporting me professionally um, from my sponsors who have been totally on board with this journey. And then uh, my coach and my physios and, and strength people, you know, we're all like in really close communication and coordinating everything with, you know, how I feel and how I'm, how I'm progressing. So it's a, it's a team effort. There's a couple of things there really. Isn't there? The, the first point you made about the children should be raised by the community and not just by the mother. So sort of, that's not common in the Western world. It's much more common in the Eastern world and, and in, in ancestral sort of upbringing really isn't it and unfortunately in the western world we seem to have that this nuclear family where we all split apart and we don't live in multi-generational households as um as as affected the the upbringing of children but also how we care for the elders in our in our world as well because they in the western world they tend to get pushed aside whereas in a lot of cultures they tend to get more absorbed into the family unit yeah that's a really interesting point that you make and i think that this kind of nuclear family also puts a lot of pressure on mom. Mm. And, you know, you see how many women were forced to drop out of the workforce this past year Mm. during the pandemic. I mean, it's, it's startling and very troubling to me, but um, you know, you know, I, I do feel that, that the emotional burden and most of the labor is really put on, on mom um, in the family unit. And, and I, and I feel that, but I also think that, you know, we're trying, we're trying to create this, this kind of system and, and support for me and for Sky that, that relieves a little bit of that because I, I do have a full-time job too. And I have other big goals besides just being a mom. It would be pretty poor of us then not to mention your sponsors now that you've given them a big heads up. So go ahead. This is your, this is your few moments to, to sort of sing, sing about them loudly, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. I am on um, Team BMC, which is based out of Europe. So I do get over to your neck of the woods occasionally. But um, my, you know, sports director and team director um, over there, Bob and Ben DeWolf, have have been just really wonderful and supportive. Um, and then I also work with Hoka Oneone, who is it's Hoka is a very progressive company in how they celebrate female athletes and how they um, how they support women through pregnancy and the postpartum period. They've actually, they actually have an Olympic marathoner, Alephine Tuliamuk, who is slated to compete in the marathon in Tokyo at six months postpartum. And oh, so, yeah. so there is, you know, a, a precedent with the people that I, I work with BMC, um, you know, supported Liz Blatchford and her, mm-hmm. her throughout her long distance career. And then in her, her return to sport after, having her daughter. So, so I work with some really, some really wonderful partners who are not new to this rodeo. 
Great. Well, let's talk about greater than one then. So as I said, episode one's out now. I watched that. That's uh, You talked about your husband. It's Steve, isn't it? Yep, Steve. Steve. Mm-hmm. Now, um, he makes a, a fleeting appearance in the program there, um, doing his diaper practice with the teddy bear. <laughs> yeah. Has he gotten any better since then? He has gotten a lot better. Yeah, he's a, he's a champ. That's not his new career you were talking about, is it? It is not his new career. No, he is... Uh, just finished his firefighting academy so is applying for fire jobs here now does that mean you could be on the move again soon then i don't think so i don't think so he's applying for jobs kind of in our in our region and i don't think i'm gonna get too far away from from my family or that we're gonna get too far away from my family it's too amazing to have them close by yeah for sure uh so in episode one then we see you training we see you talking about pregnancy we talk, talk about your wishes what 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 are we going to expect to see in episodes two through to five yeah you know i the goal is for for you know to show it all kind of the the good and the bad and the hard and the beautiful of what it's like to return to sport and return to your job after having a child and to pursue goals at the very, very highest, highest level. I think, I think episode two will be interesting because as much from my experience, as much as I have read and planned for what it's like to have a new baby, uh, it has not gone to plan or been anything like what I, I expected. And so it's been a real, it's been really challenging and a hundred percent, the hardest thing that I have ever done in my entire, entire life. But but my, you know, my goals haven't changed and my vision for my family and my career remain the same. And so, so that will, we'll, we're going to explore that. Yeah. That I'm actually thinking, as you were saying that, that as Skylar was only born in May, I guess they've only, they've only really filmed episodes two and three, have they? She was born in. Sorry, March. She was born in March. March. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, we're in filming, we're filming for episode to right now and that will come out in a few weeks okay and as it stands at present which races are you targeting for your comeback yeah i am planning to race once before the collins cup qualification period ends. the qualification period ends on august 9th and so i am planning to race i think i'll be racing boulder 70.3 Mm-hmm. That's my plan as of right now. Okay. And how, how is the training going up to this point then? It's going well. Like I said, I'm only a couple of weeks into, you know, official on a training plan, but I feel better than I expected. You know, the, I think the birth really dictates how the return feels. And I have been pleasantly surprised by, by how my body feels, there have been other things that I have struggled with that I wasn't anticipating. Um, you know, like the sleep deprivation I thought would be hard, but it's, it's, you know, a real, it's a real, it's a real challenge, especially when you're a professional athlete used to getting nine to 10 hours of sleep a night Mm -hmm. to get such broken sleep. And so, so little of it has been an adjustment. And then I, um, I haven't talked a whole lot about this, but I, have been dealing with like quite a fair amount of postpartum anxiety, which I didn't expect. I didn't really know that that was a thing. I knew that postpartum depression was something that 
women could face, but I didn't know postpartum anxiety was, you know, a mood disorder that a lot of women deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's been a challenge and kind of another thing to overcome that's not insurmountable, but you know, something that I have to really deal with. Are you okay to talk about that a bit more? Sure. Yeah. I mean, just, just because, as you said earlier, you know, there may be other females to this that are going through what you're doing. Are you seeking professional help then for that? Or are you trying to work through it yourself? No, I am seeking professional help for that. Yeah. I work with, um, a sports psychologist. Her name is Kristen Keim and I've worked with her like kind of on my racing, um, my like racing mental game. Um, but I also work with her on kind of like more personal things that I deal with and with this kind of mental health struggle that I'm, that I'm facing right now. i I'm working with her on that. And then I, um, I am reading this really incredible book called Unwinding Anxiety. Oh, we'll make a we'll make a link to that. We we're actually um, yeah. we, we've we're almost at two hundred podcasts now, and we've taken to asking guests for their book recommendations. Okay, and we have this PDF now of about seventy or eighty books that have been recommended, and we put a link to who the person was. So, if you'd like me to, I will send you a copy of the PDF with all the other books. Yeah, I'd and love that. Um, and we'll add this one to the list as well, and. Um, you know, put your name next to it. And so that, that just adds to the whole sort of resource. Amazing. Yeah. So the, the author of Unwinding Anxiety, his name is Judson Brewer. And I discovered him on the Peak Performance podcast with Steve Magnus and Brad Stolberg. Uh-huh. And he also has this really, he has an app that I'm using at the same time as reading the book and they're, they're kind of, it's a little bit redundant. So you could probably just, just do the app, but the app is also called unwinding anxiety and it's, um, a real mindful approach to, to dealing with that. Um, yeah. Mental health. I mean, it's mental health awareness week here in the UK this week. Oh, is by, it? Okay. Yeah, by the time the podcast comes out, we'll, we'll, we'll have gone past that. However, I think perhaps that mental health has, has become, uh, we've become way more aware of it individually, haven't we, over the last 12 months? And, you know, I, I know I wouldn't have said that I have mental health issues. I, I feel like I've come through this quite well. But I still think that um, there's been moments when I've I've sat down and thought, what the hell is going on here, you know? And you feel a bit lost, like you're at sea and, and you're not sure where to go. And I've got, I've got lots of friends to talk to, but and, and I think that's sort of really important, isn't it? And I think from reading about this stuff, I get, I get the feeling that men are worse in bottling this up and not talking uh, than females are. But equally, I think that a lot of people will listen to this and think, well, she's a professional athlete. She must have a lot of resilience and mental toughness. So, you know, um, it's refreshing to hear you talk openly about this. I mean, I was, I was quite taken aback and also um, re- quite pleasantly surprised that Dave Scott talked about his mental health issues um, from when he was competing and I think the more that people like yourself and Dave talk about this the more people realize that you are just human beings and that these things can happen to everybody absolutely and I think you know there's so much stigma stigma around mental health and especially for for pregnant women and for new moms you you expect just to feel kind of this incredible overwhelming joy exclusively because you have this amazing new baby human in your life that you've created, which is the most incredible gift, but there's also a whole lot of change that you go through 
hormonally and also just life changes. Your world is totally, totally blown up. And so, you know, 15 to 40% of women experience a postpartum mood disorder. And like, unfortunately for me, I am definitely part of that statistic, but you know, there are a lot of women out there who struggle with this and they shouldn't have to go it alone. And, and I think, like you said, the more awareness that we can, we can create and, you know, the more we talk about things, hopefully the less stigma there will be and and the more comfortable people will feel seeking help. Well, well, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate your openness. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, I had one more question for you. Back in the 80s, it was quite well known that in the Eastern Bloc countries, they used to, I mean, unpleasantly, they used to force the female athletes to get pregnant. But a lot of that was on the on the belief that the extra hormones and minerals and vitamins that were produced during pregnancy would then lead that female athlete to be much stronger when they came back. Now, um, have you looked into any of that and and what sort of things are you expecting to get um, from your physiology that you didn't have before? Yeah. Well, you get a massive blood volume boost when you're pregnant because you have to, you know, accommodate for nourishing this little human growing inside of you. So from what I understand that there are physiological benefits potentially from, from that. I don't think that I'm experiencing that yet because I'm so early on in, in training. I ultimately believe that the biggest benefits are going to be mental mm-hmm. because when you have a, a baby, you just have to get things done. Like you just don't have any other option, but to do it, you know, it's so hard, but you just, you just get it done. And, and so like the idea of going and punishing my body for four hours in a race, that sounds like amazing. I would love the opportunity to do that. And even every time I get to go train right now, it's like, I get to go ride my bike or I get to go to the pool or go for a run. Like it's just such a privilege to have that solo time of for me doing what I I love to do and like don't get me wrong I I love being with my daughter it is you know truly the greatest joy of my life but but I also am you know not just a mom and I and I love my job so much so it, it feels like I, something that I get to do now rather than like I have to go you know train did you find labor easily, easy, <laughs> given, given the fact that you've, you know, used to pushing yourself for four or five hours uh, in a race? Oh my gosh. No, I did not find it easy. I found it very, very challenging. I, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely experienced the worst pain of my life during, during labor. It is truly an ultra marathon because you don't know when it's going to end. You don't know what's coming next. And you know, like I said, you just, there's no other, there's no other option. There's no out. You can't DNF. <laughs> yeah. I'm done with this now. Yeah. I'm out. <laughs> well, that, well, that, based on what you say there then, so that four hours when you're racing should, if you're comparing the pain, that should feel relatively easy. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that racing will ever feel easy, but, but I think that that kind of mindset shift of just feeling grateful for the opportunity. Mm-hmm that's like what it's all about yes gratitude something else has come to the fore in the last year isn't it and um, being grateful for what oh. we've got and being able to appreciate that and and sort of have that gratitude for little little things like sky or you know like the fact that you you just had a healthy baby 
and yeah. the fact that you get to go back and do the things you love, which is racing and be with the people that you love, which is your family, and you've got great sponsors. You, you know, the gratitude for all of those. Um, again, I think uh, perhaps in the past, most of us weren't as grateful as we should have been, and maybe we'll be a little bit more grateful going forward. Absolutely. And, you know, that's not something that comes naturally. Like that way of living is not something that comes naturally to me. Like I am very much, you know, a pusher and very driven and a perfectionist and very hard on myself. And I'm also really hard on the people that, you know, I live with and work with. And so, so I think that, you know, this hopefully new approach to to life will be a really, really positive thing for me in a lot of different ways. Well, Chelsea, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. I've, I've, I've loved your openness and you, you did write to me in an email saying I'm an open book and you've, you've, you've truly proved to be that. So thank you for, thank you for sharing so openly and honestly, and uh, best wishes with the filming, best wishes with um, being the best mum that you can be and uh, best wishes for the Collins cup. Let's hope you get there. And I'm looking forward to seeing the, the remaining episodes of greater than one. Thank you so much for, for having me on Simon. I mean, really any opportunity to talk about triathlon and, and talk about my kid is wonderful. And I'm all in. Great. Okay. Well, that's Chelsea Sodaro for you there listeners. Another great podcast. Hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye for now. Thank you to Chelsea for joining me on today's High Performance Human Podcast. You can find links to everything we chatted about in the show notes below. Just a reminder that if you're interested in being part of our new High Performance Human Beta course, please email beth at thetriathloncoach.com or look for that link in the show notes. So that's all for this week. We'll be back in seven days' time with another great guest. But for now, stay healthy and stay focused on being a high-performance human in every aspect of your life.